Well, I know some of you weren't here last week. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the book. I know sometimes if you haven't been reading it recently, it's hard to, to bring it back to mind. And so uh, in chapter 13, the previous chapter of Revelation we looked at last Sunday, there John told us a vision of two beasts. It's one of those chapters that gets everybody's attention. That chapter has the mark of the beast and the number of the beast, and lots of people have speculated all kinds of, of uh, strange things about those details. We saw two beasts in chapter 13, one rising out of the sea in verse 1, and the other rising out of the earth in verse 11. When we looked at that chapter together last Lord's Day, we, we saw that those those two beasts represent their signs. They're, they're mentioned as signs. They're given to represent something else. And that first one, that first beast arising out of the sea, what that one represents is the persecution and violence and that the church often suffers in this life at the hands of wicked governments and rulers. That is not just a first century thing, although it certainly happened then with the, the government of Rome persecuting, harassing, and even killing many Christians throughout those decades. The second beast, the one out of the earth, represents what might be thought of as kind of a more subtle form of attack, not a physical attack, but basically that one represents uh, deception, as done through anti-Christian teachings and philosophies of this world. Some of those are of a religious nature, and others are of a more atheistic, philosophical nature. They're both dangerous. They both lead to bad things for the church. Now, sometimes those wicked philosophies and religions can take the form of a state religion, a wicked state religion. You know, it's not a problem having a state religion as long as it's the true religion of Jesus Christ. But very often it's not the case. When you think of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century and the centuries right around that, what did you have? You had a lot of the persecution of the church, of the true church, being done at the hands of or at the behest of the Roman Catholic Church, for one for one example. Sometimes it's not a state religion. Sometimes it's a godless religion of the state. What does that mean? Sometimes, and I think we see this more and more in our own culture today, people worship, they wouldn't say that, they wouldn't call it that, but they think of the state of the government as the Almighty. They bow the knee in every way to the state. Everything has to be done through the state. They want all power to go where? To, to the government. They want the government to have say over and control over everything rather than God himself. They don't trust God. They don't believe in God and so what do they say? Nature abhors a vacuum. And so they're going to worship something. We're made to worship and serve. And so what do they do? Romans 1, they worship and serve the creature, even if that creature is a person or a government, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You can think of that not just in our own culture, but in some worse cases. Think of anywhere where communism or socialism has taken hold. The government takes the form of, or takes the place of in many ways, people's reliance on God. Now, those two beasts have often conspired to work together in their attacks on the church throughout history. That was true in the first century. It's still true in our day. And in, our t- in, in the text in chapter 13, they're depicted as fearsome beasts that are serving the dragon, who is Satan himself. And they're, they're, they're portrayed as beasts for a reason, aren't they? When you read chapter 13, well, we read it last Sunday, maybe you were kind of almost afraid when you're reading it. It sounds awful. And it's also their beast because they're not depicted as human, civilized, in the image of God. 
Now those, those are the two main weapons or instruments, the Bible says, that the devil himself uses to make war on the church. The end of chapter 12, verse 17, we're told that he, he went to make war against the remnant of her offspring, of the, of the woman's offspring. That's the church. That's you and me. That's the church down through the ages until Christ comes and returns. Now the images of those beasts in chapter 13, in the previous chapter, have struck, I think, fear and anxiety in the hearts of many a reader down through the centuries. I think even many sincere believers in Jesus Christ have read this, that chapter and other parts of Revelation and worried and, and, been, and been made fearful, not because the text is trying to make them fearful, but we hear all kinds of strange interpretations and things, and at times we are tempted to fear. Now, if Revelation stopped at chapter 13, that would be a problem. That would not be a very comforting or encouraging thing at all. Revelation would be a very depressing book. I would not want to read it. I certainly wouldn't want to preach through it, although it's the word of God. But thanks be to God, it doesn't stop in chapter 13. We have chapter 14 all the way through the end uh, of the book. And so we come to chapter 14 this morning, at least the first five verses. And what's the very first thing that you see in our text? What's the very first thing you see in our text? The first thing that we are pointed toward in chapter 14 is the triumph of the Lamb. The triumph of the Lamb. Look at verse 1. Very important verse in our text. John writes there, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So next thing John sees, and he tells us, he really tells you and I to look with the eyes of faith, right? He says, Behold. This isn't just for John's benefit. It's written for whose benefit? Yours and mine. And the church down through the ages. He says, Behold the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ reigning in glory. That's who we are supposed to look to. Remember, the Lamb was worthy to open the scroll in the earlier chapters of the book. Joel Beakey writes the following about this part of the chapter. He says, When chapter 13 ends, it appears that the kingdom of Christ is a lost cause. When you read about the kingdom of Antichrist, the strategy of the dragon and his, and his accomplices, the two beasts, and how Satan holds sway over the whole earth, the future seems grim for the people of God in this world. But then John looks again, and what he sees astonishes him. He says, I looked again, and this time I saw things from a different vantage point. I saw things from the perspective of heaven. I saw things spiritually. I saw the Lamb standing in majesty on Mount Zion with all his people, safe under his protection. What a comfort this must have been for the people of John's time. That's the point, isn't it? This transition, it should get our attention. We see these beasts and we think, oh, what, what is this, this awful thing? And then what does he see? You see beasts rising from the sea and the earth, but then he looks up. At Mount Zion in heaven, and what does he see there? The Lamb, the Lamb standing. And he goes on to note that this is no doubt written for our comfort. It's not just written for John's comfort in his exile in Patmos. It's not just written for the first century believers who suffered under Rome. Uh, it's written for our comfort as well. And there, there is a lot of comfort, I think, for us as believers today to draw from this passage from chapter 14 as well as from the entire book of Revelation. Remember, Revelation is written for your... If you're a believer in Christ, if you're a Christian today, Revelation is written for your comfort. 
It's written for your comfort and encouragement as you go through some of the trials you go through in this world. Uh, So let us look at some of the details in this short passage and see if we can't dig a few choice nuggets of comfort from this gold mine of comfort in God's word this morning. First, I want to look at a few significant details, especially in verse 1, about the lamb. What is the first thing we see? The first thing we see about the lamb is his location. Maybe as you read the text, you kind of just gloss over it and don't think much of it, but it's important. Where is the lamb in verse 1? On Mount Zion. Now, he's not in the earthly Jerusalem. He's not on an earthly hill anywhere. He's on Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion in Scripture? Especially in this kind of a passage. Zion is the place that represents the habitation of Christ's kingdom. The place from which he rules over all things in heaven and earth for the sake of his church. Just as Mount Zion, the the earthly Mount Zion, was the place where Jerusalem was, where the king of Israel ruled, well, Zion is heaven. It's the right hand of God where Christ rules over all things. It's the place of his rule and authority and power. Douglas Kelly writes in his commentary, he says, This contrast between the enemies of God in chapter 13, those two beasts, and the Lamb on Mount Zion in chapter 14 shows us who really has the high ground. He goes to great lengths in his commentary to make the military analogy. You know, if you're, if you're in a battle, if your boot's on the ground, I was in the Navy, I was never boots on the ground, but if you were ever boots on the ground, you want the high ground. The ground, uh, the ground below is a place of, of disadvantage. The high ground is the ground that has all the advantage, all the protection and all the advantage you could have. And so he says that this vision of the Lamb shows he has the ultimate high ground. He's standing on Mount Zion while his enemies are on the earth. And those beasts in the previous chapter, they might strike fear in your heart until you who are redeemed of the Lord remember to look to your king. Very often we don't, to use the words of the the hymn, we don't turn our eyes on Jesus enough. Our eyes are down here. We see the problems, and we have problems And the church in many places in this world suffers bitter, violent persecution. It's easy for us to focus on the things down here and not remember that we have a king who rules over all of it. We may feel like we're left defenseless, but we're not. We conquer our enemies in Christ who conquered over them on the cross. Second thing, not just his location, notice his posture. What is Jesus doing? He's standing. He's standing. He's not, he's not indifferent to the sufferings and trials and afflictions of his people at the hands of wicked men who are stirred up in their hatred of him by Satan himself. He doesn't sit there passively not thinking about what his people are going through. Remember the account in the book of Acts of the, of the martyrdom of Stephen before the, but remember before Saul was converted to Paul? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen gave this amazing testimony, this amazing speech in defense of the gospel he goes through. It's like a survey of Old Testament history. And he shows how the people that were listening to him in Jerusalem were just like their forefathers who persecuted the prophets and now they themselves had even murdered Christ. In Acts 7, 51 to 60, we read this. Imagine saying this to a crowd, preaching this. You talk about street evangelism. This is Stephen's street preaching. He says, You stiff-necked people! Not very winsome, is it? Everybody wants to be winsome in the the pulpit these days. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and, uh, and ears. 
You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You expect a, you expect a big altar call, right? They're all going to rush forward and say, this is the greatest preaching we've ever heard. And what does it say? Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground or gnashed their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus doing what? Standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He doesn't just see it. He lets them know he sees it. This Christ whom they murdered, what does he say that he's doing? He's at the right hand of God standing. He's saying, that's the Christ. He's ruling over all things now. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Why did Jesus stand when Stephen was being attacked? It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. There's an old Petra song. That's how old I am. It's somebody stood up for Stephen. He stood up for Stephen. He took notice of it. You know, when, when somebody uh, is, is attacking or doing something to one of your kids and you're, sitting, you're seated, seated somewhere, what do you do? Well, don't tell me everything you do, but you stand up. You're ready for that. You're about to do something. You're showing them you're going to do something. You're not sitting there indifferent to what was going on. Well, Jesus stood up. The Lord of glory stood up for Stephen when he was being attacked. Now, I don't think we should miss the fact that he was sovereignly at work, even in these awful circumstances. It doesn't get much worse than being stoned to death. All he was doing was preaching and serving God, and he was stoned to death in a violent way. Jesus, no doubt, had his purposes in permitting his servant Stephen to die a martyr's death. You and I might have, if we didn't know the story, we might have expected, well, Jesus is just going to stop it. He's going to stand up, and, and Stephen sees him standing up, and he's going to do some miraculous thing and, and repel his attackers, but he doesn't do that at all. He had his purposes in letting Stephen die the way he did. Not only did he glorify the name of Christ, but there could be no doubt that he also granted Stephen's request to receive his spirit. The Heidelberg Catechism has the following to say about the death of of believers. We're going to look at this exact question next Sunday, Lord willing. Question 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, Since Christ died for us, why must we also die? You ever ask yourself that? If Jesus died to take my place because of my sin, why do we still have to physically die? Why doesn't he spare us from that if we really are forgiven in all these things? Why, why do we still die? It says, answer, our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. It's not a punishment. Probably feels like a punishment. It's not a punishment. He's not getting a, he's not getting his last, you know, ounce of, of punishment and revenge for your sins by letting you die. It is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin 
and a passage into eternal life. Two good things, two great things, unspeakable things really happened to Stephen the moment he died. Probably more than that, but at least two according to this question and answer. He never sinned again. And not only did he never sin again, but he was with the Lord forever. All, all that those people, his enemies, did was send him home. And he was free from ever having to sin again. And he's with his Lord and Savior. That's, that's what happens to you, beloved, if you die. When you die and go to be with the Lord, what happens? You never sin again. And you're with the Lord forever. Stephen's enemies, the enemies of the cross of Christ and the gospel, murdered him in a violent way, but ultimately he was not harmed at all. Ultimately he was not harmed at all. He was received at home with his Lord and Savior and Redeemer, and Christ used his death, didn't he? Was well, I remember when I preached through Acts, however many, however many years ago it was now, and we got to chapter 7, I remember distinctly thinking, what a waste. What a waste. I, I was almost appalled by it, even though I know what happened with the rest of the story, because Stephen, he come, he's like a comet. He comes shooting across the scene, the, the, the scene, the picture in Acts, and then he's gone. And he's this man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and he, he looks like a superstar. God's going to use him to do all kinds of great things, and then he's violently killed. And I thought, you know, what? why would he do that? What a waste. He could have done all these things, but what did God do? What did the Lord Jesus Christ do through his death? The conversion of Saul. Without Stephen, I mean, God could have done it some other way, but without Stephen, no Paul. And without Paul, how many untold numbers of thousands of people don't hear the gospel in Asia Minor? He used Stephen's death, the Lord Jesus Christ did, to save a multitude of people. He makes all things work together for our good. Brothers and sisters, at times, it seems like the Lord is not in control of all things. The book of Hebrews says, it does not right now appear that all things are in subjection to him, but they are. We just It doesn't look like it to us at this moment. We often have, maybe you do, I'm sure I do, have trouble understanding how he's going to make all these bad things work together for our good and for his glory. But in Revelation 13 and, and 14, we're, we're taught here to rest assured that our Lord, the Lamb of God, is even now reigning over all things for our sakes. He's not sitting idly by while his people suffer in this world of sin and misery. He'll make it all right someday, but even now he's using it for his own glory and for his own purposes. Well, lastly, notice the company of the Lamb, not just where he is and and that he was standing, the company of the Lamb. Look in verse 1 again. Here we see once again the 144,000 mentioned that we were first introduced to back in chapter 7. What is the 144,000? It's the army of the Lamb. It's the army of the Lamb, the church militant, although in this case they're in Zion with him. It seems to be the church at home with the Lord, the entire church. You know, many commentators point out that this represents all of the people of God. You know, numbers, a lot of numbers in Revelation. What is 144,000? Here's our math, our math quiz. It's 12 times 12 times a thousand. Twelve is the number of the tribes in the church in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. Twelve is the number of apostles in the New Testament church of God. 
So you have 12 times 12, and then 1,000 is, is kind of the number of multitudes or, or perfection. So it's, this isn't some weird, you know, you hear all these weird interpretations from Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and others that say that this is some special group, you know, dispensationist. Remember, I think I quoted uh, Hal Lindsey a while back in the earlier chapter where he said this was 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. That is not what this is. This is you. This is the church, all of God's people, safely home in glory with the Lord. It's the army of the Lamb. And again, notice where they are. Where, we talked about the location of the Lamb. Where, where are they? Where are you? Where is the army of God? They're with the Lamb of God in Zion. And notice how, how John describes them in this vision. He says, verse 1, They are those, quote, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, do you have a name written on your forehead? No, it's a vision. It's all in, it's in symbols and signs. It's not meant to teach. It's meant to teach, remember, literal truths symbolically. It, it has the idea of being sealed. Now, when you're baptized, what are you baptized into? The name, not names, the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Unlike the worshipers of the beast in that previous chapter, remember what they had? They received the mark of the beast on their right hand or forehead. Well, this is the real seal for the people of God. Unlike that, the servants of God here have the seal of the living God, chapter 7, verse 2, on their foreheads. Well, what is that seal? It's the name of the Lamb and of His Father written on our foreheads. We are marked as belonging to God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have been marked and you have been sealed by God as His own you have been set apart forever and irrevocably as his own. You belong to Christ, and no one can take you away. You have been sealed in your baptism, and especially in what your baptism signifies and seals, which what is that? The indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, whom we have been, by, by him we have been, Paul says, sealed for the day of redemption, Ephesians 4, verse 30. The Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. He is he himself is the guarantee of your inheritance. Now, why is that? We're told no less than two times in our text that the army of the Lamb, these 144,000, of which you are a member if you're a Christian, is made up of those who have been, quote, verse 3, redeemed from the earth, and he says it again, and redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, verse 4. What's the difference between you and those who are outside of Christ who have the mark of the beast, kind of the, 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 the fake seal, so to speak, of, of the beast and the dragon, the devil himself, you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All who are in Christ by faith have been redeemed by the blood of Christ as that of a spotless Lamb. We have been purchased by his blood and saved from our sin and the power of Satan. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you realize as the Bible says you have been, Paul says, bought with a price so that you are not your own, 1 Corinthians 6.20. Bought and paid for. We are owned not by ourselves any longer, but by Jesus Christ himself. And notice one other thing that the, the text tells us in verses 2 to 3 about what the army of the Lamb, that's you and me, what are we doing in this vision? We're singing. Look at verses 2 to 3. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. 
The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. God's people are singing. They're singing a new song. Very often our call to worship this morning. Psalm 96 talked about singing a new song. Psalm 40 talks about singing a new song to the Lord. Well, what are new songs for? You know, people have used that as an excuse to keep on writing songs that some of which are not very good. But, but the new song has to do with a new aspect of God's deliverance. When God did some mighty act of deliverance for his people, very often a new song was, was written and sung. And so he's saying, there's going to be one last new song. And it's going to be after that last ultimate deliverance when we're in heaven with the Lord in glory in Zion. And only you are going to get to learn it and sing it. But God's people are people. His army sings. His army is a singing army. The, the army of the Lamb is not just a standing army, as we like to call it, but it's a singing army as well. I asked the kids last night, what kind of, trivia question, what kind of army sings? What kind of army sings? Does a defeated army sing? No. No, a, a defeated army does not sing. A victorious army sings. They're loud. They're what my old company commander kept yelling at us. He'd say, lean back, be proud. They're leaning back and they're proud and they're letting everybody know. They're singing loud, they're chanting, they're saying all kinds of things at the top of their lungs. In Christ, we have every reason to sing. There's a reason we sing every Sunday. The reason, hopefully, you drown me out every Sunday, but we sing. You don't have to be good at singing, but we have someone good to sing about. No matter how the battle goes in this world at the time, no matter how God's redeemed have to endure many things, uh, if, if you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you should never tire of singing. We have all kinds of reasons to sing, because in our Redeemer we have the victory. You remember the Apostle Paul, this is, this is Acts Sunday apparently, Remember the Apostle Paul and Silas when they were in prison in the city of Philippi? What did they do? Remember they were arrested for preaching the gospel of Christ? Now that was the real cause. It wasn't the formal charge. They charged them with disrupting the city and teaching things that are bad. But in Acts 16, 22 to 24, it says this, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates, you know, the government officials, tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had, had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they're beaten, they're, they're stripped of their clothing, they're beaten, they're probably a bloody mess. He tells the jailer, you know, don't just put them in jail, really put them in jail. So what does he do? He doesn't just throw them in a cell. He takes them down to the deepest part of the jail to make sure they can't get out and fastens them with chains in the stocks. As he's got them as securely jailed as they can be. There's no human way to get them out. Now, why did that happen? If you want to interpret Acts through the lens of these visions in Revelation, especially the previous chapter, this happened because those two beasts of the devil, those two beasts, were waging war against the church. Both the wicked government and those who made a profit from pagan religion in Philippi worked together to persecute Paul and Silas for their testimony to the gospel of Christ. 
That's the real reason why they, that crowd did what they did. That's the real, the spiritual reason why they were in that jail and having suffered the things that they did. But what's the very next thing you read of in that chapter? Acts 16.25, Luke says this. The most counterintuitive thing maybe you've ever read in Scripture. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. No doubt. They were probably in the center of the prison, a good, good acoustics. Everybody could hear everything they said. They were praying and they were singing. I don't know about you, but if I get beat up, the first thing I think of doing is probably not singing. Maybe crying, maybe curling up in the fetal position, but not. They're singing. They're praying to God and they're singing. Who is it they were? And they weren't just singing. They were singing to God. They were praying to God. And what is clear from our text there, God heard them. God heard and answered. Who else heard them? Their fellow prisoners. And who else probably heard them? The Philippian jailer, the man who himself fastened their feet in the stocks. And that Philippian jailer was soon to be converted to Christ. Christ, at the right hand of God, we don't know if he was standing, but I imagine he probably was, because what did he do? He made that imprisonment work against the devil again. And he converted that jailer and his whole household to salvation through it. Anyone can sing when things are going well. But the redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ can sing no matter what. Because why? I, I, this, this is like the verse we bring up every Sunday in, this, te- in this, this book. Because we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. Or it, you can literally translate it super conquerors. Like we don't, the scale doesn't just barely balance out. I don't know about you, I wouldn't be too excited about suffering much if that were the case. I'm not excited about suffering at all. Don't get me wrong. But he doesn't just say, eh, Jesus will make it kind of even out. What does the Bible say? The, the, the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in the sons of God. The scale is going to be flipped over. It's going to be flipped over. We're more than conquerors through him who loves us. No matter what happens, even if we die a martyr's death like Stephen did and like Paul did later, more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Well, the last thing our text tells us about it in verses 4 to 5, it tells us another detail about that army of the Lamb. It tells us that the redeemed of the Lord are also followers of the Lamb. Look at verses 4 to 5. It says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, again, remember, these are symbols. This is a vision that, that God is giving, that Jesus Christ is giving to John. When John says these are virgins in verse 4, he's not saying that in a literal sense. There are some who have interpreted this in an odd literal fashion to say these 144,000 is a special group of you know people who have have been celibate and all these things. It's not what John is saying. It's, it's, it's to be understood as being in contrast. It's a picture, it's a symbol of contrast to the wicked, those who inhabit Babylon, whose fall is depicted later in the same chapter. There John describes them as, uh, as Babylon, as quote, verse 8, making all the nations drink from the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The scripture, very often, I'm sure you have seen this in your reading of, of all kinds of the books of the Bible, the scripture often likens idolatry 
to adultery, spiritually speaking. And so to be described as virgins here is to be described as being faithful to the one to whom they've been betrothed. Even towards the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 19, we read of the, quote, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. The church is the bride of Christ, and our Lord's return in glory is kind of like the wedding day and the wedding reception, kind of all rolled into one big thing. That's the same idea that we have seen here in our text. And notice it says that God's people in verse 4, quote, follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So I ask you this morning, are you a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't mean, have you just professed faith in Christ? I hope you've all done that too. Are you a follower of Christ? And what does that look like? It looks like when you see his commandments in Scripture, when you see what he tells you his will is in Scripture, we try, by the work of the Spirit, imperfectly at best in this life, but we try to do what he would have us to do. If you're not a follower of Christ, you may be a lot of things, but a Christian is not one of them. Followers of Christ are not some special category of Christian. They're not the second level Christian. You know, like the, the regular Christians, they're down here and they're in the door. You know, they're in, but you know, they don't do much. And you have followers. This isn't a pyramid scheme. The Christian life isn't like that. If you're a Christian, you will follow Christ. Not perfectly, but you will follow him. Look what Jesus says in, uh, in, in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So it's a question, are you, a, are you one, of the, one of Christ's sheep or not? And he says, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now don't, don't misunderstand me or the scripture here. You are not saved by your following of Christ. You are not saved by your works. That is not the gospel. You're saved only by the redemption of Christ on the cross. But those who are redeemed will follow the Redeemer. They will follow Christ. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Do you hear the voice of Christ, your good shepherd, in the scriptures? Do you hear the voice of Christ in the preaching of the Word of God? Do you follow his voice in the Word of God, especially in the Gospel? That's, that's what Jesus is talking about there. If so, you will repent and believe in him. You'll follow him all your days, even if imperfectly. Remember, following does not earn salvation. But think about it this way. What a joy is it for a lamb who was once lost to be found and to be rescued and redeemed by the shepherd? You ever been lost as a kid? You ever get separated from your parents at the mall or somewhere? And the parents probably freak out more than you did. But what happens when your parents finally find you or when someone brings you to your parents? You're stuck on their hip like glue. Where, where else would you rather be once you are not, no longer lost but found, if not right by your shepherd? It's no fun to be lost. It's no fun to be not knowing where he is. The sheep want to be with their shepherd at all times, always. What a blessing it is to once be lost but now be found. What a joy to know that even though we may wander, you know, there's a hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You know, we, we tend to wander, but what a comfort it is that our good shepherd 
He comforts us, Psalm 23, with his rod and his staff. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What does that mean? It means he defends you from your enemies, and he also goes and gets you when you wander. What a comfort it is to know that our good shepherd will gently guide us and bring us safely home. Never forget, Lord willing, that the army of the Lamb that you are a part of will share in the joy of the triumph of our, of our King and of the Lamb. Amen. Let's, let's pray.